Dave, explain where we are. Yeah. All right, we are at the Adelphi pub in um, in Leeds. We are at a cigar night, which is organised by Kenneth Barker and myself. And the Adelphi is only a few yards from where Louis Le Prince, um shot the very first motion picture in Leeds, on Leeds Bridge. And he is the person who, um, with his camera invention, then decided to go to France to publicise it, got on a train, disappeared. Never seen again. If only he'd used a bus replacement service, he'd have been okay. Uh, but no, he didn't. Right, so we've got this cigar night. And of course, cigars play a very important role in black and white television. So explain your kit. Well, you've got, you've got a cigar drill. For those of you who may be a little bit that you've got a cigar cutter as well. So, um, to be careful with those as well. Um, and this is this is another type of cigar cutter. My cigars! I've been smoking my cigars! And he's bitten the end off. No, calm down! What sort of a fiend are we dealing with? A man who would bite the end of a cigar is capable of anything. The only thing you've got to remember, of course, is not be vulgar and light your um, cigar with um, a gas lighter. Or, sorry, a petrol lighter. Ideally, you should use matches. And you can have special um, cigar matches, which are comedically long. Out of light. Not bad. Not bad at all. What's wrong with a petrol lighter? Apparently it makes the tobacco stink. Or makes the tobacco stink worse than it already does. Uh, so yeah, just have to be a little bit careful on that. Um, so yeah, the idea behind tonight is um, like-minded individuals can come out, have a bit of a drink, um, celebrate the, the Platinum Jubilee and um, enjoy a good cigar as well. Who would you say is, is the best cigar smoker in black and white television? Uh, it has to be Roger Moore because he, he, in real life, so he didn't have to act smoking a cigar because he did smoke cigars. So it's, it's that's that kind of works for him. Um, but yeah, um, you know, throughout his life, he was always a big cigar smoker, big big cigar advocate. I don't know whether he ever made the cover of Cigar Aficionado, uh, which is the, obviously the, the go-to magazine for cigar people. I think this thing has got a bit lively. I shall uh, stop this. We'll go into post-production. Hello and welcome to episode seven of rose tinted black and white television my co-host is david newell who is recovering from his cigar night escapades last week i was there but i didn't inhale it's very difficult to hold your breath for two hours but i managed it i'm guy morgan and this is the showcase edition of the podcast which goes out on buzzsprout dave did you see the email that i forwarded to you Oh, which one was that? We've had a very nice email from Alison at Talking Pictures TV. Oh, lovely. I think it's nice probably because she hasn't had a chance to hear the podcast yet because they're very busy okay. running Talking Pictures TV. Absolutely, they're projecting films. She's been very nice. She promises to listen. I hope that she's uh, not disappointed. And I have asked for any pointers about how we might improve things. <laughs> 
for want of a better word. Yeah, synergize with them. That would be nice. Anyway, thank you very much, Alison. And regards to everyone at Talking Pictures TV Towers and hope we'll be in touch again soon. After I left last Friday... <laughs> Yes, yeah. At the cigar night um, and retreated to an oxygen tent. All so a bit grab the next day. <laughs> but some excellent pictures of you in Brick House having discovered... A saint car? Did it have the registration number ST1? No, regrettably. And it didn't have that giveaway stick figure on the bonnet either. As Martha did say, it's not very World War II, is it? It's not very 1940s. And she did have a point. So that was part of the World War II weekend. Yeah, the 1940s weekend. So whilst there were loads of Jeeps and, you know, um, Andrew's sisters type singing, um, and squaddies and spivs, an alarming number of people walking around with Sten guns. It was a great day and a fly past by a hurricane, which I've never seen in the sky before, live. Yeah, they are quite impressive. It's that thrum that goes right across the sky. I was worried that they may strafe the <laughs> Wilco car park, but thankfully they didn't. But you didn't feel tempted to hotwire the Saints car and make off with it? No. Now, could you identify the interstitial interruptions in the original part of the Cigar Night preamble? I must admit, the first one, no. But my suspicion for the second one, and I'm probably way off base here, sounded like Cyril Cusack. No. Um, The first one... A man who would bite the end of a cigar is capable of anything. It's a bit tricky because it's Steed and Mrs. Peel... But not as we know them. I was going to say, yeah, because obviously we'd have recognised Patrick McNee's distinctive tones. It's from the episode Who's Who, where Freddie Jones and Patricia Haynes are swapped into the bodies of Patrick McNee and Diana Rigg. What devilment! So their characters are called Basil and Lola. So Patrick McNee and Diana Rigg, for half the show, play Basil and Lola and get to snog Mm. and he gets to bite the end off cigars. And that is why Steed is so outraged when he goes back to the flat and discovers that Basil has been at his cigar collection as well as his wine. Now, really, one of the things we did say on Cigar Night, you know, you should use a cigar drill, ideally, or a small cigar cutter, small cigar guillotine. Um, But if you, you know, you're biting the end off a cigar Unless you're Clint Eastwood in a fistful of dollars, you really shouldn't be doing it. I should point out to people to be very careful of cigar guillotines, as Herbert Long in one of the Pink Panther movies. So be very, very careful when you're Mm. handling equipment to mutilate your cigars. The second one... Not bad. Not bad at all. ...with the comedy matches is John the Measurer. Oh... As the sinister Benson in What the Butler Saw episode. Oh, right, okay. Black and white Mrs. Peel episode where Patrick McNee is going undercover as a dodgy butler at a dodgy butler school. There's loads. There was a spate of them in the 60s and 70s. (laughs) Terrible. So, like, kind of like hundreds of illegitimate, unqualified butlers who would just come over and, and kind of like passport the wrong way. You know, just bring in a business card and give not even on a silver tray, um, not change their jacket from morning to afternoon. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The blue bloods of Britain, oh, that blue blood was boiling. That's right. And Dirk Bogard is one of the prime examples. Yes, absolutely. Yes. 
And talking of things that are bad for you, like smoking and alcohol, mm. which were in evidence. Can't deny it, yeah. But one other thing that is extremely bad for you and thankfully didn't make an appearance was the mob. I don't know if you had a chance to bone up on the Saints mobster credentials or mobsters in black and white television because they're one of the many strands or kidney of villain uh, Mm. that people come up against. Mobsters, gangsters, um, general villains are the people who the Saint frequently comes up against and who obviously the Avengers came up against. Uh, and when they were Ian Hendry and Patrick McNee, there was a lot more anti-criminal activity in the first series of the Avengers. I think the Baron probably does the same thing. The man mm. in a suitcase. Yeah. The champions. Yeah. I mean, is there a big difference between mobsters and gangsters, I've I've always found it difficult to distinguish the difference. Obviously, mobsters imply that there is a mob of them, but whereas gangsters also imply that there's a gang of them. So they, they are collective names. They are. I think it's to do with the handkerchief in the top pocket and the way it's folded. <sighs> oh, it's a giveaway. But obviously, that harks back to the original Leslie Charteris stories. And for example, The Man Who Was Lucky, which we'll discuss in the review show, is an example of that. But there's also, going through the first season, The Careful Terrorist, if you remember, that was the one set in New York where the reporter friend of Simon Templer is uh, murdered. A TV journalist, yeah. So he's murdered by a crooked union boss, but I think that's... Yeah, you know, teamsters, gangsters, who knows? There is a crooked lawyer one the other week defending um, all the worst kind of scum. Uh, so, yeah, again, I think that fits into it. That's in New York. I think possibly if you are in New York, you're the mob. And okay. if you're in the old world, you're probably a gangster. So that's... Three out of 12, that's 25% of the first season of The Saint devoted to gangsters. I mean, they're all fairly nasty characters, aren't they? Yeah, they will usually have some hired goons uh, who will do their bidding. And usually, it seems to be, in all of these instances, um, rather than overcoming them by force, it's just a case of guile where they've uh, um, Simon Temper employs a little bit of cunning and a little bit of psychology so that they almost end up turning on themselves. And in fact, um, they do in the careful terrorist when he keeps telling this guy not to press the button, but the gangster crooked Mm. union boss does press the button and blows himself up. So he was warned. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, There's, there's, there's no denying it. You know, he was, he was given the information and he chose not to use it. And there's the Italian American gangsters. There's usually quite a lot of punch ups. And if the saint hasn't managed to con them or double cross them. Overcome them, overcome them with cunning and guile. And I was looking at a few more of the color episodes and there are quite a few. It's, Sometimes it's difficult to know when they're foreign gangsters, whether they are in fact also working for a foreign power or they're just selling secrets and stuff 
to the highest bidder things uh yeah because the vendetta for the saint it's um as we've mentioned before it's ian hendry isn't it who is who's meant to be italian and he's, he's kind he's, of like, i think he's meant to be sicilian i think he attempts an accent a drama college um a period accent um which means that it comes in at periods and goes out at periods. you're profiteering in mobsters and gangsters that it seems to be gambling quite often some of it is focused on a casino certainly or on a dog track when we get to the man who was lucky or horse racing or perhaps even motor racing but the one that always baffles me is at that old standby which is the numbers racket um again going all the way back to the um gangstering days of damon runyon uh, and i remember reading peter Moss's book um about frank serpico the new york detective Mm. who who kind of like ratted out police corruption and there's a description of what the numbers racket is or as it used to be officially known as running policy i've never understood what the numbers game or numbers racket is so i'm hoping you'll be able to give us a blow by blow description unfortunately much like the rules for the game of craps which i've read numerous times it just went over me head because the way it's described in the book um in serpico you think why would anyone bet on that i don't know it'd be like having a we made up a game at drama college for a restoration comedy called stick or string and um the idea is a gentleman would pick up a a stick with one piece of string in another and you would put them behind your back and then the other gentleman gambling would then have to guess whether the stick was in your left hand or your right hand and and we made up this backstory about huge stick or string gambling debts kind of ruining london at the time because the upper classes just didn't know what to do and were lousy at playing it um but the numbers racket is almost as daft as that it's like saying right pick a number between eight and you just go oh right uh all have number eight please that's ten dollars and then they say oh and the winning number tonight is nine he just go oh so close but it was it was huge obviously police um and federal task forces to to tackle it but yeah absolutely baffling why would i bet on this why would i bet on it what you really need is someone to do a a pricey and in the ex-king of diamonds they had an american tourist at the casino played by a Canadian actress actually but she asked Simon Templer whether Baccarat was the same as Shemi oh right okay yeah and Miranda Fair and as you may remember in an episode of Snatch Squad somebody tries to explain the differences oh it's like pontoon yeah um Pharaoh is another card game which is um again you know thousands and thousands being bet on it and you think what what it's no the house always wins because the clients are always dumb. Yeah, so that that's another arena that they were they're into. And then obviously the protection racket would always be one because you'd open up your new business, your little Italian themed restaurant or um, a photocopy shop or, or something like that. And then some thugs in some mod suits would turn up say hey you need to start paying us protection and then they do something horrible like break your pepper grinder in half or pull the plug off your photocopier and then it'd be just like oh no these are thugs if only i had a protection racket to protect me from thugs there is an incident in the man who was lucky where they do some protection racketeering they do they turn someone over and it's not a question of ransacking 
I think there's a there's a fine point. If you ransack somewhere, then mm. you're looking for something. But they weren't looking for anything. They just wanted no, to. They were just making a mess. It's like having teenagers come around your business. And so obviously that then led to even further unpleasantness, mm. um, which we'll uh, discuss later. But yes, there's there's another Colour Saint episode uh, called The People Importers. We're talking about the last season here, which is mm. about illegal immigration and people being ferried illegally across the channel. Thankfully, that's a thing of the past, though. Um, again... You know, we can reflect back on these 60s series and just think, oh, thank goodness, that kind of thing doesn't go on anymore. Indeed. But that needs to be fairly organised. So we're talking about organised crime. There's corruption. Corruption. Um, there's uh, obviously what you'd have to do in the, you know, in the 30s, that there had to be a huge revisionist approach um, to mobster and gangster, um, you know, gangstering in, in America when prohibition was repealed one of the things that people argue about prohibition is that instead of reducing lawlessness it just made criminals of nearly everybody um, <laughs> you've got the, the the aspect um of all of a sudden you know who are you you know who are you going to buy your booze from if you can do it legitimately and just go down to costco you know big cash and carry and buy it or or you're going to pay it for double the price from jimmy Dunn. Um, you're just going to say, sorry, Jimmy, don't need it anymore. I've got the Costco loyalty card. I can, I can go down and get like a big, big flatbed trailer full of booze. Um, and I don't have to have your goons coming into my establishment um, anymore. So all of a sudden, yeah, that, that cash cow was was taken away. Look at diversifying. Into things like protection. Yes. Yeah. If you're not supplying the booze, then you're supplying protection and using places as fronts for gambling and the numbers racket. But you've read a few of the saint stories and the stories of that era. What, mm. what kind of criminals are portrayed in those particular stories? I mean, such as the Edgar yeah. Wallace one. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. The, um, there are those. Obviously, one of the early, I think maybe the first saint story, actually, and it's the saint meets the tiger. Um, and that refers neither to the successful um, British comic of the 60s and 70s, featuring Roy of the Rovers, um, or an actual tiger. Um, quite often, uh, the villain being apprehended would either, you would either know who the villain was up front, it's the tiger, he's taking on the tiger, or you would have it where everyone knew that there was a villain called the tiger, or in one of my favourites, G-Men smash the professor's gang, or Dwayne of the G-Men, and you, you knew the name of the villain, but then the big surprise is who it turns out to be at the end. You've got like a big reveal, someone pulling a hood off or a mask. Um, and it turns out, why, it's Judge Cartwright, but it can't be. Oh, it's Captain Donnelly. Oh, no, it can't be. Uh, so you would have that as a as a big reveal. And, and, and quite often they would hold the city in a, in a grip of fear with politicians and judges, as is said in The Godfather, in their pockets like so many nickels and dimes. And you would have that idea of uh, you just think, how can one person, you know, the saint, the falcon, G-man, Dwayne of the G-Men, how can they, you know, overcome these double odds? Um, but again, a little bit of gunplay um, and an awful lot of psychology. So they turn on one another like the rats that they are. The other alternative, I suppose, is to don a mask and a cape 
and obviously yes, perfectly legitimate route a lot of people will very fondly remember the 60s tv batman uh, with adam mm-hmm. west he always seemed to be locking people up they didn't die i think uh, that was one of the uh, no, us that'd be terribly distasteful and so they wound up in jail and then they used to get off on technicalities or they used to break mm-hmm. out of jail and sometimes they used to stand for office and the idea of someone who blatantly breaks the rules uh, achieving public office is a nonsense yes um again thankfully you know we can reflect back on the naivety of the 1960s when we see that kind of activity reassured that that kind of thing is never going to rear its ugly head um in today's fair and um forward-thinking democratic age See, I think what an advantage would be with mobsters, they normally have an Achilles heel. And usually that Achilles heel um, is what is known, um, um, and it's very rarely advertised in the, as this in employment agencies, is a mob accountant. Someone who cooks the books, you know, make sure like, they've got all the money coming in, all the money going out. Obviously, David Mamet scripted film The Untouchables. It's, it's a mob accountant. Uh, who, who kind of like breaks the case open. Um, but rather than, than having that weakness of having to rely on a certified public accountant, I think maybe if mobsters did some night classes in accounting, they'd be able to, they'd be able to do their own books. They'd have, you know, I don't know, Sage software, be able to keep an eye on payroll and payoffs and, and things like that. But they wouldn't have that worry of oh no oh, bloody hell me mob accountant he's going to rat me out he's oh he's been oh, he's been played by the saint that would be a great improvement but of course can you trust the software oh no with sage though we get regular updates at work so that, i'd be fine i guess i'm still yeah. slightly befuddled by sage i must admit another thing that uh, they make their money out of is counterfeiting now oh right yeah now in the medicine men which is a Kathy Gale episode of the Avengers. There is a dastardly plot, which kind of also has political overtones. And what they're doing is that they're counterfeiting pharmaceuticals that are being sold into uh, the Middle East. Now, this is partly a money-making exercise, but I think it is also partly to subvert ruin the reputation of British industry in the region and I'm not quite sure on whose behalf but then yeah counterfeit goods is definitely one of the things that they benefit from um Harry Lyme obviously was selling his his counterfeit um counterfeit drugs in Vienna in the um the third man obviously with disastrous effect um for when Trevor Howard leads Joseph Cotton around that kids ward um, and you don't see the kids, but you have an idea. It's not pleasant. No, no. That That is the feature film, though, because when Michael Rennie plays Harry Lyme... He wouldn't get caught up in that kind of nonsense. No, he's suave and sophisticated. And I'd quite hope that Talking Pictures might be able to secure those episodes because I'd quite like to watch them again because they are a very dim memory from my early childhood. Art theft and fraud? Yes, yeah, but stealing to order. But I would imagine as a mobster, you, you, you might have to at least have a degree. You, you'd have to know what you were doing. Yes. And I think probably there is that fine line. You might be organised, but it's a question of whether you use physical violence in your art theft and forgery. 
See something like the Thomas Crown affair, admittedly mm-hmm. not too, but there are uh, similar things. Where is it actually violence to set off smoke bombs and and tear gas people? There's intimidation, isn't there? Yeah, in real life, I don't know how organised you could call it, but the great train robbery involved a bit of violence. Um, yes. And they weren't sufficiently organised not to get caught. They're never quite as disorganised in TV fiction. Uh, there usually has to be somebody like the saint who comes along and intervenes and wraps it all up before the police turn up and he can present them gift wrapped. Yeah, with all the evidence and, and everything, there you go. Or they just break down and confess themselves um, because they've they've been manipulated that way. We're never convicted without a confession. I wasn't entirely mm. sure about that confession in The Man Who Was Lucky. So you just have to assume that a due legal process occurs and they're banged up for a considerable amount of time. But anyway, that's gangsters, things that are bad for you. And kids, don't try this at home. I mentioned a, a couple of other things. Let's talk about Delphi Lawrence quickly. She has one Avengers point from Yay. 1961. It was a busy year because she was also in May Gray, Sir Francis Drake, and Top Secret. Is that a film with George Cole? No, it's not a film. It's a TV series. Would you like to guess what it's about? Top Secret sounds like it may be vaguely spy related. I'd like to hope it was. Would you like to hear the theme tune? Oh, right. OK, go ahead. That way I don't have to guess what it is because guys already told me. It's a very familiar tune to me. I had no idea it belonged to Top Secret. Would you like to hazard a guess as to who wrote it? Uh, oh, right. OK, so when did he say it was? 1961. You have talked about him earlier in the series. Oh, right. Okay. Oh, in that case, then, um, is it... Well, we, we mentioned um, the other week when we were talking about, obviously, other ITC pieces. Um, we mentioned Edwin Astley. Oh, no. Oh, wait. My other two choices are, my other go-to choices are Laurie Johnson or Ron Grainer. Good calls. It's the Laurie Johnson Orchestra. Yeah. It's called Suku Suku, which is the theme from Top Secret. Believe it or not, they actually had location shooting in Argentina. It cost gazillions. It depends on the exchange rate, I suppose. Mm. Would you like to guess who might have starred in it 1961 1961 uh, there are some big hitters in terms of black and white television in the uh, 60s but somebody who's suave who we have mentioned did they import like a star to do it someone like dane clark no these are the best of british so i will put my guess forward as nigel patrick yeah well let me have a look. It's my opening bid. I don't know if Nigel Patrick is in this. No. Oh, what a shame. No, afraid not. I will put you out of your misery. William Franklin. Oh, what? The voice of Schweppes itself. 26 episodes. Patrick Cargill, 26 episodes. <gasps> Alan Rothwell, Basil Dignam, 
there's an awful lot of future Avengers points here. Anne Blake, Robert Cauldron, who has a lot of saints under his belt. I mean, if you've got a series called Top Secret, those are the sort of people you might want in it. So, Is there much spying going on in Buenos Aires? There's always stuff going on in Buenos Aires, particularly for someone who looks suave and sophisticated like uh, Bill Franklin. I would imagine one of my favourite TV tropes in that would be... Um, a slowly rotating ceiling fan. Yes. I don't know how hot it gets in Buenos Aires, to be honest, but uh, you'd have that anyway, wouldn't you? Yeah, you just have to have one. Um, standard fitting. Our next door neighbour's got one and she never has it on. We'll be back again. We're talking about the second season of The Saint. People watching Talking Pictures will not notice the difference between the end of season one and the beginning of season two but nine months elapsed between broadcasting. So we might discuss that. We hope you got something out of this, even if it's um, how not to be a mobster. Great. Thank you very much for listening. My co-host was David Newell. I'm Guy Morgan. And catch the review show over on Southstage North SoundCloud channel. Goodbye. (laughs) 